Well, it's hard to beat hearing God's people sing great truth like that to God and to sing it to one another. So I hope you were encouraged and challenged by that this morning. And I hope that's your testimony that you can say it is well with your soul this morning. Let me invite you to take God's Word, take a copy of the Bible that you have with you. If you don't have one, you can grab one in front of you there in the seat pocket and turn to the Old Testament book of Ezra this morning. Ezra in the Old Testament. It's right before Nehemiah, before you get to Psalms and Proverbs. Chapter 1 of Ezra is where we're going to start in just a few minutes. We're continuing with this story series, and then we find ourselves... If you've been reading along in the short little book of Ezra this morning, so go ahead and find your place there. Uh, I want to begin with just asking you a question. Have any of you ever really, really, really been homesick before? You don't have to answer out loud, just kind of answer to yourself, but maybe you're thinking about a business trip that you took, that you were away for a while, and boy, you just couldn't wait to get back to your family, or... Maybe it was a vacation that just didn't go the way you planned it to go and you couldn't wait to get back home or maybe a military assignment or something that took you away from home for a period of time and while you were there, you just realized, I can't wait to get back home. Well, that was true for me several years ago. Jennifer and I had the opportunity to travel with Campus Crusade and it was my very first time out of the United States of America, and we went and served six weeks in Belarus. Now, that's a former Soviet republic. In the month of May, leading up to June, in the dark, dreary, cloudy, rainy, cold time in that country. And it was one of those times of my life, after about three days there, I was thinking, Lord, I want to go home. Food was not very good. It was cold and wet. Uh, Eastern European hospitality is not exactly Southern hospitality. Wasn't really sure they wanted us to be there, and I was not sure I wanted to be there. Here I am about three days into it and realize I have another five and a half weeks to go. I was homesick, and I wanted to come home to what I knew and what was familiar. And I remember counting down the days, and then we finally flew out of Belarus. We spent a few days in Germany, and then we came home. And I distinctly remember the moment when we were flying over Canadian airspace and and the pilot came on and said, okay, we're hitting North America, and thought, man, we're close. And then when we literally crossed United States airspace, the pilot came on and said, welcome to the United States. And there was a group of about 50 or 60 of us students, and literally we began to sing the Star Spangled Banner in unison. We were just so excited to be home. And I couldn't wait to get to Atlanta and get on the ground. There was two things I wanted. I wanted to sleep in my own bed, and I wanted to go to Cracker Barrel. And that's what we did. I thought, if I could just have a meal at Cracker Barrel, the world will be right again. That's what we did. We stopped at Cracker Barrel like two or three times on the way home before we got back to Tri-Cities. But you know that sense, that feeling of being homesick. You're away from home and you want to be home. And that's exactly what we've been looking at for the last several weeks as God's people, the children of Israel, have been away from home. They have been in exile. You know the story, we've been walking through this in the Old Testament, that the people of God, the nation of Israel and Judah, the Babylonians came in and took them into captivity and took them into exile in Babylon. Now it's called Persia as Babylon has fallen and they've been homesick and they just want to go home. For 70 years they're there in captivity and exile. And finally, when we get to Ezra and Nehemiah today, we come to the section of the story where the people of Israel get to go home. 
And you say, if you, don't, if you haven't read this and you're not familiar with the story, what was it that ultimately brought it about for this massive group of people to be able to leave their nation of exile, Babylon, Persia, and travel back home to Jerusalem? And you say, well, King Cyrus had something to do with that. If you know your history, he was the Persian king and he decreed it to happen. We'll look at that in just a minute. That was one of the reasons. But the main reason, and here's what I want you to see this morning, the reason we're even talking about this from this, this point of view, the ultimate reason the people of God who were in exile there in Babylon and Persia, the main reason they got to go home is this, is because God promised it would happen. God gave them a promise that they've been hanging on to with everything in them for now an entire generation of 70 years. And I want you to look at that promise very quickly. I'll just put it up on the screen. You don't have to turn there, but Jeremiah 29, 11. Jeremiah speaking before the exile, before the deportation, before Judah was wiped out, before the temple was destroyed, predicts what was going to happen and speaks to the exiles. He says this, Jeremiah 29, 4. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, to all the exiles whom I've been, who have been sent into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. Verse 10, read on down. For thus says the Lord, when 70 years have been completed for Babylon, I will visit you and I will fulfill my good word to you and I will bring you back to this place. God says, in a period of time of my decree, you're going to come home. Now verse 11. Many of you have verse 11 memorized. It's on your bathroom wall. You have it sewn into your purse and all this stuff. It's just one of our favorite verses. Verse 11, you need to know the context. says this, why are you doing that, Lord? For, God says, I know the plans that I have for you, declares the Lord. Plans for welfare, not for calamity. To give you a future and to give you hope. God says, 70 years, years before it took place, I'm going to bring you home. And I have a plan for you and my nation. So, as we come to Ezra and Nehemiah, here's the tension I want you to see this morning, and then we're going to apply it to our own lives. The people are in exile. They are a three- to five-month journey from home. God has promised, I'm going to bring you home. It is one of those situations that seems hopeless because it is a wicked king, a wicked nation. The nation of Persia is now in control. Here's the question. God... Let me put it this way. Most of you in this room would give the Sunday school answer and I, if I were to say, do you believe God is sovereign? Oh, yeah, I believe God is absolutely sovereign. Here's what we're going to look at this morning. God, how do you go about carrying out your sovereign plans in the lives of your people? Here they are in Persia, in exile. God, how are you going to get them home? How are you going to orchestrate events and how are you going to work in people's lives and how are you going to provide in such a way that from reality to the fulfillment of the promise, how are you going to do that, God? Because let me just tell you something. If you're here and you're a follower of Christ, you're living in that place right now. There is something in your life you're waiting for God to fulfill His promise. All of us. That's where we live. We live by faith, trusting that God is a promise-keeping God. Because if what God speaks to you and me in this Bible is not absolutely true and you can't hang your life and your soul and your eternity on the promises of God, we all are wasting our time. You're wasting your time. So God, how are you going to get your people home? Because you promised you were going to do it. Ezra chapter 1, look there with me. 
Scripture says this. Now Ezra is writing this, and Ezra, just for a point of context, is a priest. He, he's still in Persia, formerly Babylon, now Persia. He's writing. He's a teacher of the Word of God to the people of God. He's the writer of Ezra. He's the writer of Nehemiah. He's still in exile. He decided, he's, he's still there, and he's writing. He says this, verse 1. Now in the first year of King Cyrus, king of Persia... In order to fulfill the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah. What's that? We just read it. Jeremiah 29, 11. I know the plans I have for you. I'm going to return you home. In order to fulfill his promise, the Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, king of Persia. Stop right there. If you write in your Bible, and you're one of those that loves to write in their Bible like I do, I encourage you to circle that word stirred up, because what you see here is one of the ways and means that the God of heaven works to carry out his purposes. There is no heart outside of the authority of God's capacity to stir that heart. Cyrus, pagan king, idolatrous king, God uses Cyrus. Isaiah 44 says, we're not going to take time to read it, you can look it up. God predicted this, said it was going to happen, ordained it to happen centuries before it came about. I'm going to raise up a wicked king, I'm going to put him over Persia, and I'm going to use him to bring my people home. Why? Because God keeps his promises. You can bank on it. So God stirs up Cyrus. So he sent a proclamation throughout all his kingdom and also put it into writing. End of verse 1. Verse 2 says, Thus says Cyrus, king of Persia, The Lord, the God of heaven, has given me all the kingdoms of the earth, and he has appointed me to build him a house in Jerusalem. Whoever is there among all the people, may his God be with him, and let him go to Jerusalem and build the house there. Children of Israel, children of Judah, I'm sending you back to Jerusalem. How does God work in our lives and the lives of his people to bring about his purpose. I'm going to give you four or five different things. Number one, truth number one is God stirs in the hearts of those in authority. The word stirred up here is, literally means to arouse or to awaken. It is used of raising something, uh, someone to action, of agitating someone or motivating someone or him and her. God sovereignly works in the heart of King Cyrus for him to issue this decree. What is some practical application of that for you and me? Proverbs 21.1, you may know this verse, says this. The king's heart is like channels of water in the hand of the Lord. He turns it wherever he wishes. You really believe that? So what that then means for the children of Israel is in a time when it looked hopeless under the leadership of a pagan king, God was still at work. <laughs> And God was still going to carry out His purposes. What that practically means for you and me is a lot. I'll give you a couple. One is you may have a person in authority over you right now that you have no idea and no clue how in the world is God ever going to use this person in my life. It must be a mistake that this person, this boss, this parent, if you will, this teacher, this principal, this whatever, in a position of authority, there's no way God's going to use this person in my life. There is no heart outside of the touch of the grace of God. God stirs the heart of Cyrus. 
also incredible application for you and me. There are people in your life right now that you are desperate. You're in a situation, maybe it's a relational situation. Maybe you're sharing the gospel with someone. Maybe whatever it is, you are pleading with God. God, you've got to change their heart. Some of you are thinking of names right now where you think, well, there's no way. You have no idea the person I'm talking about. They are so far out of the reach of God's grace. You don't get any further than a pagan king. God stirred their heart. Listen, beloved, as we pray and as we seek the face of this God, just know that the people you're praying for on your list, your three names, the people you're praying for in your family, the people you're praying for around you, God stirs hearts. God has the capacity to stir and change the heart of the king himself. Ezra 1.5, continue on. Then the heads of the father's households of Judah, Benjamin, and the priests and the Levites arose. Even everyone whose spirit God had stirred to go up and rebuild the house. There it is again, had stirred, circle that. Go up and rebuild the house of the Lord, which was in Jerusalem. Secondly, God stirs the hearts of those that are in authority, and God stirs the hearts of his people. God stirs the hearts of his people. God will use means. God will use situations. God will use his word preached. God will use the word of God as we study. God will use whatever it takes. He will stir the hearts of his people to join him in his activity to carry out his purposes. Now, there are people who are now exiles there in Persia It's been 70 years, so there's a generation that's raised up. Some of the kids of these parents have never even been to Jerusalem. They've not been to Israel and Judah. They've even begun to develop somewhat of a good life there in in Persia. It's a three- to five-month journey, a very dangerous journey to leave where they were, go back for many a place they didn't even know except from their forefathers. It had to be a work of God. Often when God is about to do something or God's at work in the life of an individual, a family, or a church, God will begin to stir our hearts. God's stirring the hearts of his people to raise them up to return. Number three, let me give you another truth. Flip over to Ezra chapter 4. Ezra chapter 4. God stirs hearts. He stirs the hearts of the authorities. He stirs the hearts of his people. Truth number three, give you this. God uses adversaries and opposition to carry about his purposes. You may find yourself in a situation where you, you're pursuing God's will or you're moving forward or whatever the case is, and boy, you think, I'm, you're facing opposition. And there's conflict and there's difficulty. And again, there's maybe even names and my, there are faces that are coming to your mind. That's exactly what happened to Ezra and the people of Israel. Ezra 4.1, now when the enemies of Judah and Benjamin heard that the people of the exile were building a temple to the Lord their God, they came to Zerubbabel and said, hey, let us build with you. But their motives were impure. They were trying to derail the work of God. Zerubbabel was the governor who had come from Persia a godly Jew who's leading his people, he said, no way, you don't have any part with us. Your motives are impure. Then it goes on, verse 4, Ezra 4, 4 says, Then the people of the land discouraged the people of Judah and frightened them from building and hired counselors to frustrate all their counsel in the days of Cyrus, king of Persia, even until the reign of Darius, the king of Persia. So it went on for a period of time. Here's the people of God sent there, carrying out what God has called them to do. And there's opposition after opposition, enemies after enemies, difficulty after difficulty. They send counselors, they discourage, they frighten. And for a period of time, the work of God comes to a halt. Now, Pastor Mike, are you saying God's going to use these 
adversaries and this opposition in the lives of these Jews? Well, I'm not going to take time to read it. You can read it on your own, chapter 6. Here's what happened. One of those enemies decides to write a letter back now to the new king of Persia and say, hey, you need to make sure the work here never begins. These Jews, they're building all this stuff. Whatever you do, you've got to keep this from happening. And this letter comes to the new king of Persia, King Cyrus. And King Cyrus says, well, I get this letter about these Jews. He goes, check the archives. And go check the archives. And this new king, I misspoke, Darius, looks back and finds out that the former king Cyrus had issued that decree. And then King Darius, the new king, watch this. He sends a letter back to the enemies of God. And I'm just going to read a portion of what Scripture says. Chapter 6, verse 6 says, You keep away from them. Don't hinder the work of God. Moreover, verse 8 of chapter 6, he says to the enemies who are trying to derail the work of God, he says, I'm going to issue a decree, and you know how we're going to pay for the work of God that's going on in Jerusalem? We're going to take your taxes and pay for the work of Jerusalem. He says to the enemies, you're going to support the work of God. You're going to be a part of it. Oh, by the way, you're going to pay for it. So what are you saying? I'm saying even those that tried to oppose what God was doing became a part of his plan. Why? Because you can rest this morning that God will keep his promises. He keeps his promises. So he uses that person in authority. He uses his people. He even uses those that try to derail the work. Ezra 6, 14 says, And the elders... Ultimately, were successful in building through the prophesying of Haggai and Zechariah. They were taught and encouraged through the prophets Haggai and Zechariah. That's how it fits into the story of the Bible, those two books in your Old Testament. And they finished building according to the command of God. Verse 15, this temple was completed on the third day of the month. So finally, the temple there in Jerusalem, just like God had decreed, is finished. Ezra 6, 16, and the sons of Israel, the priests, and the Levites celebrated the dedication of this house with joy. God had kept his promise, but not all of it yet. Ezra 6, 19 says, the exiles observed the Passover in the 14th of the first month. Now the people of God have gathered back around the temple of God there in Jerusalem, and they're observing the Passover. There's a greater promise that's coming. Just hang on to that. So here the work of God continues. God's got His children. He's got His people back in the promised land. They've built the temple, but the work is not yet finished. A period of time passes, 40, 50 years, something like that. And the focus then goes from what's going on there in Jerusalem. And like a movie, it shifts to another scene. And it shifts back to what's going on in Persia. So I want us to go back to what's going on in Persia. So take your Bible and turn to Nehemiah chapter 1 really quick. Ezra wrote Nehemiah as well, but what's going on in Persia is there's now a new leader. His name is Artaxerxes. There's a new king there. There's still some Jews that are in exile who decided to stay back. Nehemiah is one of those Jews who is still there in Persia. Flip back to Jerusalem. Things in Jerusalem over 40 to 50 years are now not going well. The promise of God that he had promised to fulfill is not completely fulfilled. There's been opposition again that's come against them. And Nehemiah, who has a very important position in front of the king, receives word about what was going on in Jerusalem. And that's where we pick up Nehemiah chapter 1, verse 1. God, how are you going to continue to carry out your promise to these people? 
Nehemiah 1.1. 1, 1. The words of Nehemiah, the son of Hakali. Now it happened in the month of Chislev in the 20th year when I was in Susa, the capital. He's in Persia. Now stay with me here. That Hananiah, one of my brothers, fellow Jew, and some men from Judah who were in Jerusalem, I, and I asked them concerning the Jews. They returned from Judah. Nehemiah goes to them and he says, how are, how are things going? How's the work progressing there in Jerusalem? And, and how are the people? And I asked them concerning the Jews who had escaped, verse 3, and they said to me, well, the remnant that is there in the province who survived the captivity, here's what's going on, they're in great distress. Things aren't going well. And they're in great reproach. There's shame upon them because they're being mocked. Why? The wall of Jerusalem is broken down and its gates are burned with fire. So they've been able to build the temple. But in those days, a city's prestige was its wall around the city. Without a wall, you had no protection from enemies. You were not even really counted as a real city. So they had no honor. They had no prestige. They had no security. And they get the word back, the people are beaten down, their enemies are having their way with them, things are just not good in Jerusalem. Now, Nehemiah, when he hears this, and let me give you an illustration of what this will be tantamount to. Let's say you're a parent and your children are on the other side of the world on a, I don't know, an education assignment or a mission trip or something like that, and you get word back that it is not good, they are sick, they've had some kind of accident, you can't get to them, they can't get to you, and your heart begins to break as you are grieved about what you've just heard. Things are not going well in Jerusalem. Nehemiah, verse 4, how did he respond? When I heard these words, Nehemiah said, I sat down and I wept and I mourned for days. And I was fasting and praying before the God of heaven. I want you to feel the emotion of Nehemiah here. You can just say it this way. Nehemiah's heart is now gripped by what he heard. He loves these people. He's thinking, God, you, you promised to fulfill the... You promised to establish the city and not just not this. Remember, welfare and good for the city and a prosperous city. And Lord, that's not happening. They're distressed and they're beaten down. God, how do you fulfill your promise in and through the lives of your people? Here's the fourth one. You ready? God creates a burden in the heart of His people. Nehemiah is a man of God. Nehemiah is a man of prayer. Nehemiah is a guy who walks with God. And Nehemiah hears something. He is disturbed by something to the point that it begins to grip his heart. And it's not just a piece of information to him. It's not just something he reads about in the paper. It is now gripping his very soul. And he's got to do something about it. Application. Brothers and sisters of God. What is it right now that God has, God has put in your heart God is gripping your heart about that is now a burden to you in the sense of, you, God, you've got to do something. Is it a student? Is it a child? Is it one of your children? Is it a nation? Is it a situation? Is it a family? Is it, what is it? What is it you are aware of that God has opened your eyes to? And it is a burden. Lord, you can't, Lord, you've got to do something in this situation. And in all honesty, maybe you watch the news and you hear about the atrocities in our nation of Planned Parenthood and it grips your heart and you think, Lord, we've got to do something about this. 
It goes from mere information that comes to your attention to an absolute burden of your heart. It's you've got to do something. God works in the lives of his people that way. What's yours? What's yours? Nehemiah is so burdened here. Nehemiah, what what do you do when you have that type of burden? What does Nehemiah do? Nehemiah chapter 1, 5 through 5 and 6. I'll take time to read it. He starts to cry out to God. Verse 5, Nehemiah says, I beg you, Lord. He's crying out, God, it's the sense of, God, I've got this burden. It's so heavy on me. Lord, I want to see this happen. I care for this person or whatever the case is. And I'm reading between the lines here. It's like this, God, I see the situation. And God, I don't know what to do. You ever felt that way? God, I've got this burden you've put in here and I don't know what to do. I want to be a part of the solution, but I don't know what to do. Nehemiah prays, he fasts, he cries out to God for days we see here. And he continues to pray. And it seems like as you read Nehemiah chapter 1, as he fasts and as he prays, God begins to put something in his heart and he realizes something that's true. Verse 11 says, O Lord, I beg you. And he's crying out, he's passionate. He says, May your ear be attentive to the prayer of your servant and the prayer of your servants who delight to honor or revere your name. And make, it's like this comes to him in his prayer. He realizes something. Make your servant successful today and grant compassion before this man. Stop right there. What are you talking about? I don't even know what that means. As Nehemiah is praying, he realizes, wait a minute, God. You've put me in a very significant position here in Persia. The end of verse 11 says, Now I, Nehemiah, was the cupbearer to the king. Stop right there. You may know what a cupbearer is. In those days, the role of a cupbearer was not one of those roles that people stood in line for, right? Oh, let me be the cupbearer. Let me be the guy that drinks the poison, right? That's what the cupbearer was. In those days, kings had a real knack of making enemies. And a really easy way to knock off the king was to slip a little poison in his wine or a little poison in his food. So in those days, kings had what were called cupbearers. Everything the king ate, they had to test it. Everything the king drank, they had to test it. Nehemiah had rose to that position. There's positives and negatives to being a cupbearer. The negative is... It might have a short lifespan. But the positive is, what's this? You begin to build a great relationship of trust with the king. Because day after day after day after day, that king says, did you try it? Oh, yeah, it's good. Did you taste it? Yeah, it's good. Trust me. Uh Okay. Day after day after day after day, there's a trust that begins to be built. Nehemiah, as he's praying with this great burden on his heart, this great passion to do something for his people, realizes, wait a minute. You have given me, Lord, an audience with the most powerful man on the planet, the king. And he says, Lord, verse 11, grant your servant, speaking of himself, favor before this king. God, would you prepare the heart of the king for what I'm going to ask him? I'm going to give you two more truths of how God works to carry out his promises in our life. Number five is this. God chooses to work in response to the prayers of his people. Nehemiah prays. 
Nehemiah prays particularly for the heart of King Artaxerxes. We are tempted when we talk about the things we've talked about this morning to erroneously say something like this. Well, if God is absolutely sovereign, and if His results are going to be what He decrees, and they are, then why in the world should I pray? You ever thought that? And the answer is, is because God not only ordains the end, He ordains the means to bring about the end. And God has chosen that there are things He will do in our lives, through our lives, in this world, when and only when the people of God pray. God chooses the ends and God chooses the means to bring about them. There are things God is desiring to do in you, through you, in your family, in your life, in this church, in this city, in this world. And He has put a burden on your heart and your response is to begin to call out to the name of the God of heaven for His glory. And God chooses to work through the prayers of His people. So explain that. I just did the best I can. There's a mystery to it. There's a mystery to it. But Nehemiah knows the promise. He knows God's sovereignty. And yet he's crying out to God because he believes God chooses to work when his people pray. So what's the outcome? Well, next thing we see is, I'll just give you this next truth really quick, is God assigns his people to significant places of influence. That's some of you, maybe many of you in this room. So he gives him an audience before this king, Artaxerxes. Nehemiah has this burden on his heart to do something for the people in Jerusalem. He waits a month. A month passes, and then you come to Nehemiah chapter 2. Let me read a few verses. I'm going to make one last application, and we're done. What happens when the servant of God prays? Verse 1, chapter 2. And it came about in the month of Nisan, the 20th year, about a month later, that wine was before the king. And I took up the wine and I gave it to the king. That's what he did. He was a cupbearer. Now, I had not been sad in the king's presence. What does that mean? Well, kings in those days weren't real keen on people in his court with a droopy face because if you served in his court and your face was all sad, that reflected on him. So you had to, you had to fake it, right? Like we do sometimes coming into church. We put our church face on. They, you had to fake it in their court. Well, Nehemiah is... So burdened, he can't fake it. His heart is so grieved. Verse 2, so the king said to me, why is your face sad though you are not sick? This is nothing but sadness of heart, the king said. Then I was very much afraid. Why? Because with a word, King Artaxerxes could have went out of here. He doesn't know what's going to happen. Verse 3, I said to the king, let the king live forever. Why should my face not be sad? And he's going to go for it. The king's given him an opportunity. Nehemiah's got to be thinking, should I go for it here? Should I tell him what's on my heart? He does. Verse 3, I said to the king, let the king live forever. Why should my face not be sad when the city, the place of my father's tombs, lies desolate and its gates have been burned with fire? And then he just waits. In other words, he said, "Here's here's why I'm brokenhearted. Because my city, Jerusalem, lies desolate. The walls have not been built and the people are in distress. And then it's like, what's the king going to do? So there's this huge moment of drama and tension. Then verse 4, then the king said to me, what would you request? Do you love that? Let me translate that. What do you want me to do for you, Nehemiah? 
In this moment that Nehemiah's been praying for for over a month now, the king says, what do you want me to do? I love Nehemiah's response. Watch this. The king says, what do you want me to do for you? And Nehemiah says, so I prayed to the God of heaven. Do you know what a flare prayer is? A flare prayer is those moments and you realize it's, it's a key moment. Or you've got to make a decision or you're in an awkward place, whatever it is, and you've got like 0.3 seconds to, to do something and you shoot at those prayers. God, you've got to help me. Nehemiah shoots off a flare prayer here in verse 4. God, help me. Verse 5, I said to the king, if it please the king and if your servant has found favor before you, send me to Judah, the city of my father's tombs, that I may rebuild it. I know I serve in your court. I know you've given me a place of honor. I know we have a great relationship. But will you send me to Jerusalem? How's the king respond? Verse 6. Then the king said to me, the queen sitting beside him, how long will your journey be and when will you return? Do you love that? So it pleased the king to send me and I gave him a definite time. Now stop right there. So God is going to use Nehemiah to carry out the fulfillment of his promise to establish the city and the welfare of the city just like he promised all the way back in Jeremiah. How did he do it? He used the prayers of Jeremiah of Nehemiah. He used this burden that he had placed on Nehemiah's heart. He changes the heart of the king. All of that when we see here's reality. Here's God's promise. God is a promise keeper but he also uses ways and means to bring about his promise. And he's doing that in your life and my life today. So what's the outcome? Well, Nehemiah and his people returned. He took a group, several Different groups went back and they rebuilt the walls around Jerusalem. You can read about it in Nehemiah chapter 5, verse 15. 52 days after he got there, they rebuilt the walls. And Nehemiah said, because the good hand of my God was on me. God's favor was on Nehemiah. Why? Ultimately, because God keeps his promises. And some of you here this morning need to hear that over and over and over. God keeps His promises. The promise He made to Nehemiah, the promise He made to Jeremiah, Ezekiel, and all the prophets was not completely fulfilled in the building of the temple and the wall. He also said in, Nehemiah, or, uh, in Jeremiah 33 that there's going to be one who will come, a descendant of David, and he will... He will restore justice and righteousness to the city. 400 years later, that partially became true when Jesus Christ, the Son of God, walked into Jerusalem and went and died on a cross to restore righteousness and justice. It will ultimately be fulfilled when King Jesus returns and restores, restores His kingdom forever and ever and ever. We're hanging on that promise as well, that King Jesus is going to come and make it all right. But even until then, you as the people of God, we are people that hang on to God's promises, don't we? That's how we live our life. We know what God says in His Word. We trust His character that He will do what He said He's going to do. And we hang on to that. Some of you right now need to hang on to the promise of God in Romans 8.28 that says, God causes all things to work together for good to those who love Him and are called according to His purpose. And you are in a situation right now and you are hanging on to that promise because you're saying, God, I see no way you can bring good out of this. Hang on to the promise. God keeps His promise. 
If you're here and you're a believer and you've trusted Jesus Christ as your Savior and your life and your Lord, you can hang on to the promise of 2 Timothy that says, He, God, is able to guard that which I've entrusted to Him and keep us until that day. In other words, if you're a believer, you have trusted your soul to the eternal keeping of the Lord Jesus Christ. You know why you can trust your soul? You know why we have assurance of salvation? It has nothing to do with me because if I could lose my salvation, I would, right? Because God keeps His promise. And when you entrust your life and your soul and your eternity to Him, He keeps you in accordance to His promise. Some of you are here. Some of you are here and you need to be reminded this morning, God is a promise-keeping God. The same God that keeps His promises in times past is the same God that keep, is keeping His promise in your life today and you can trust your eternity to Him in the future. He is a promise-keeping God. Amen? Now I want to close with one final illustration. The team can come on up and just begin to prepare. So don't, don't, don't check out on me. I'm going to share one last thing with you as they come up and we're going to sing about the promises of God in just a second. You know, life events reveal to us if we're really trusting the promises of God. Whether it's a job loss or it's a, you fill in the blank. I I saw that right before my eyes yesterday. You may or may not be aware, but one of our founding members here at Tri-Cities, Mr. Terry Gillenwater, one of those guys that if you're here and you enjoy the ministry of this church, we stand on his shoulders. 25 years of faithful service here. Went home to be with the Lord last week. I was with him Monday, the day before he died. He didn't know it was his last day on earth. He died the next day. And when I left the hospital room, I I couldn't believe the peace that that man had in his heart. Why? Because he was recounting all the good he had done in life? No, he's a godly man. He was hanging on to the promises of God. There was a funeral service yesterday. I got to be part of that service. Pastor Gene got to be part of that service. And it was one of those services that it that there was grief because there was loss. But it was a celebration. <laughs> and that family was able to stand. And Mr. Gillowar's daughter, Amy, stood up and gave incredible testimony about her father and his life. And she, with great hope, was able to look toward the future because in this life event, it was tested and revealed they were trusting the promises of God. They were hanging on to 2 Corinthians 5 that says, Be of good courage, brethren, whether absent from the body. To be absent from this body, from this tent, is to be home with the Lord. And they knew exactly where their husband, father, friend was in the very presence of the Lord Jesus Christ. Why? Because God keeps His promise. Right? you bow your head for just a moment this morning we're going to stand and sing in just a second but I want to encourage you and challenge you right there where you're seated are you hanging on to the promises of God right now is there a situation in your life that you just do not know how? God how are you going to use this for good God how are you going to use this for your glory he promises he will have you trusted your soul to this God who keeps His promises, He will guard your soul in Christ 
when we place our faith in Him for eternity. You trusting Him for major decisions right now? You trusting Him for that person? You're begging Him to change their heart? Has He put a burden on your heart? Go to this God who keeps His promises and say, Yes, Lord, whatever it is, I will take that next step trusting You. We bank our lives and our eternity on the reality that He is a promise-keeping God. Lord, we love You. God, help us to trust You. God, this morning, stir our hearts as we leave this place that we are trusting You more. We are clinging to Your promises more. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.